Let's go ahead and do our normal intro. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to have Rob say, and I'm Rob, but I guess not this time. So we have a guest with us today, which is wonderful. Rob Salkowitz, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Rob Salkowitz. I'm a writer and sayer of things about comics. I write for Forbes, where I'm senior contributor for media and entertainment. I write about the industry at ICB2, which is the trade pub of the comics biz. And uh, sometimes I write at Publishers Weekly. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. And that made me the guy who wrote a book about Comic-Con. So I get to go to Comic-Con <laughs> and talk about all this stuff. Fundamentally, I'm a, I'm a nerd that's gone pro. I'm impressive. Nice. Yes. One thing that may have come up in an earlier episode that we've done here is that when we were kids, our mom was a stockbroker and financial advisor, and she would always read Forbes, which we just always considered like the boringest magazine ever. Just like, oh, how, how could you stand to read that? Uh, then meanwhile, we were all into reading about comics. And then, uh, you know, if you had told me at that age that, you know, in the future, not only is Forbes going to have a comics industry correspondent, but you will personally know him. <laughs> I would have uh, been gobsmacked. And yet here we are. So how on earth did you end up there? How on earth did you end up at Forbes writing about comic books? I have been on the business side of stuff for quite a while, but I've always been a fan. I had written several other books on future of technology in different areas and around 2011, you know, I was, I was due to write another book and I was at Comic-Con and I was looking around and I say, boy, all the stuff that I'm looking, I'm talking about in terms of the future of business, marketing, technology, digital media, personal branding, you know, immersive events, every single thing that was on the minds of businesses at that moment was happening right there in front of my eyes at Comic-Con. So I, I wrote the book from a business perspective, because nobody had ever done that before. Nobody had ever taken the business of comics seriously enough to say, hey, this is a model for other industries to get right a lot of the stuff that, that companies were spending millions of dollars getting wrong. Um, and it was kind of an interesting moment when everything was sort of in the course of blowing up. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was just kind of getting going, and it was just kind of dawning on people that this was a this was kind of a big deal. So having written that book from a business perspective, at some point, Forbes came to me and said, hey, we need somebody with business cred to write about this stuff because our readers want to read about it. And to this day, I'm still wondering, what does the Forbes reader want to know about the comics biz? <laughs> uh, you know, like, I, I mean, and and also what person on in comics would go to Forbes to read about it? Um, <laughs> but, but apparently there is an answer to that question because um, I am... Of all of the Forbes contributors, the stuff that I write is some of the highest traffic stuff on the site, which just blows my mind. So there you right. go. Well, and if you had told me that fact, then I would have been like, oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, because <laughs> of course, that's what people would want to read about. Meanwhile, uh, Rob, talking beforehand here, we were talking about how this was a casual, no video. So you said you were planning to show up sans pants. So did we did we go with the plan? No comment. <laughs> okay. Well, meanwhile, I decided I'm going to crack a you beer. Might, you might hear the so. clinking of ice cubes 
in the background um, on the mic. I'm sure it's nothing. It has nothing to do with the scotch and soda or anything like that. <laughs> well, I, I just literally cracked a beer on the um, on the microphone here. So. <laughs> hey, my other podcast, I drink. But I don't drink on this podcast because we record more often and I would become a lush. Like the other podcast, we record an episode like once every two months. So I'm like, oh, I'll go ahead and, you know, that'll be my drinking podcast, but not this one. Before we jump in, I, I just want to see if there's anything else I want to ask. Where about. So, Rob, what are you writing about right now with comics? What was your assignment today? As you know, it's Black History Month coming up. Uh, DC has some announcements about reviving some of the milestone characters and oh, right. the 30th anniversary um, milestone set of stuff, new books coming out, new new editions uh, collecting the older material. So if you're fans of Static and all of that stuff that was going on in the 90s, you know, they've got a lot of new um, and, and also existing talented uh, creators of color that are involved in that. So I'm going cool. to write about that for tomorrow. Awesome. Yeah, actually, that makes me wonder if, um, you know, I after being more or less out of the biz for quite a while, I got two sets of comps from DC recently from old work that I had done that was being compiled into trades of some sort. And one of them was a Dwayne McDuffie retrospective for his mm -hmm. work at DC. And now that you say that, I'm like, hmm, I got that probably in advance. I wonder if they timed that to come out right before Black History. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the things that I'm featuring. Um, yeah. Of course, Green is... Uh, much missed, and I, I, I'm hoping from the announcements recently uh, with James Gunn and where he's taking inspiration uh, for the new directions of the DC universe, that he is at least um, paying close attention to the stuff that Dwayne did for the Justice League animated series, which is yep. some of the best storytelling ever done in the DC universe, in my opinion. I'm I'm finishing my Justice League rewatch right now. I'm I just watched Supergirl join the Legion of Superheroes. I've got three episodes left for my epic. I did a complete DCAU rewatch, so that's taken me about ten years, and I'm about <laughs> I'm about done with it because I'm going to end with Justice League Unlimited. So it's been a, it's been a long strange trip. But Dwayne McDuffie just did absolutely amazing work on that series. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to say that an image that I inked is one of the ones that was used on the cover of that trade that just came out. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, actually, right. I just sold that very page to a fan like two months earlier. So um, I then emailed him and I was like, hey, that page you just you just bought from me. Look where it showed up. So, yeah, very nice. Cool. So, well, that's so cool. Well, you have such a neat job, Rob. You get to live the dream. You get to write about uh, comics that actually matter for people who are actually making things happen. It's very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Did you read all eight of these comics? Uh, yes, I did. Although I could not find, for some reason, I could not find the giant man story in Tales to Astonish. So I oh no, well that is a shame. <laughs> you missed out on so much to think. I mean, it would have just broadened your whole horizon as a human being if you could have read that story. Wait, no, that's not true. It's a, it's a really <laughs> terrible story. But yeah, thank you so dog. much for actually reading these comics. And uh, we've never had a guest on before who actually read the whole months of comics before. So you've entered into a new level here. So uh, that's great. Well, I feel bad because, oh, we've got a guest who actually read all the comics tonight. And that's awesome. I'm like, but these aren't great comics. This was no, a pretty it, bad it month for Marvel really, Comics. It's a really weird moment in 
the Marvel Silver Age, where it's like the thrill of the new was over. Like, so it's not like, wow, like all this cool stuff is happening. And like the really good stuff was still right around the corner, but it was not there yet. Even the stuff that I was expecting is like, oh, Steve Ditko, Spider-Man in the middle of the run. Like, this has got to be a great one. And no, it's one no. of his weaker outings. Bottom quintile for sure on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, let's go ahead and get started with that. This is one of Steve Ditko's weakest Spider-Man books. So we have had just constant Human Torch guest starring in Spider-Man. He guest starred in issue 8, issue 17, issue 18, issue 19. Then he took one issue off in issue 20, but now he comes roaring back with issue 21. And I am tired of him. This idea that he has so much chemistry with Spider-Man that he essentially can become a regular guest star, the regular guest star in Spider-Man's book. I'm just not buying it. I don't think they're great together. But let's go ahead and there were, take a look. There was one good story, right? In that Strange Tales annual number one or two or whatever it was, that was a good Spider-Man Human Torch story. And because that was good, I think they were like, well, sure, let's just do that again because that was good. And you know. I'll take exception to that being that good. I was not a big <laughs> fan of that, uh, of that outing myself. It was, that was like the most extended Spider-Man story Kirby ever did, I think. So I think it's an interesting issue. But uh, yeah, I forgot about that when I was talking about all the times they've been together. But so this is Spider-Man number 21. The big problem is we not only have Human Torch, we've got one of Human Torch's villains. We have two books this month in which Human Torch's villains are so wonderful. Everybody just loves the villains in the Human Torch book. And they're good enough to graduate to other books this month. So we've got the Beatles showing up here in Spider-Man. And we've got the eel, of all people, showing up in Daredevil, of all places. We go ahead and do this book. There's a lot of complicated plot going back and forth in this book that we don't necessarily want to get into. The Beetle gets out of prison. Human Torch finds out about it and ditches Dory Evans. So then, meanwhile, we've got Spider-Man going around. We've got this sort of general progression in terms of how much the public hates and fears Spider-Man that's been getting worse and worse with every issue. And now it's gotten to the point where Spider-Man just goes out in the street and everybody just flees in fear, I guess, because Jameson is just having more and more effect. So this is sort of a new thing. And he's still not officially against the wall yet. He's still not officially being hunted by the police yet, but surely that's coming here. Spider-Man, the Beetle, and the Human Torch all almost run into each other, but they don't. Human Torch then goes back to Tori Evans, who is, you know, like the whole idea that she just can't stand the Human Torch never really felt like a good story thing here. The Beetle has followed the Human Torch back to Tori Evans's house, figures out there's a connection between them, and then decides he's going to go after Tori Evans. Yeah, so the, the whole Torch Dory Evans thing, I think it had potential, but they just completely botched the execution from day one. Where was it here? Um, very well, we'll see. But remember, just one cry of flame on, even a whisper, or just one little spark, and you better forget my phone number. He's like, it's a deal, love of my life, but what do they feed you when you were a baby? Nails? And it's just sort of like, wow, this is a bitter old couple who is, you know, who has been putting off divorce for way too long, but they're teenagers. <laughs> this, is like, this is like 40-year-old Stan Lee writing this dialogue, and probably all that he knows about contemporary teen culture is stuff that's on, like, sitcoms or, you know, in pop culture. He has no firsthand experience of this except for his own life back in the 40s, right? So it, it, his, his takes on contemporary relationships are leave a little to be desired. Across yeah. all of them, I think. Yes. 
so the Dory Evans is out shopping and what, oh yeah, it's just, hey, oh, Tommy, kids. come back with my football. So just some kids who are playing football knock, o- knock her over in all her packages. Peter Parker, then of all people, runs into her, helps her with her packages, sees she's dropped her wallet, goes back to her house to bring her wallet. She then offers him a drink and they hit it off. And then Human Torch, Johnny Storm then comes up and it's like, uh, who is that dude who is just leaving your house? And she decides, oh, I'm going to go ahead and tell Johnny Storm, Johnny Storm, that he was a much nicer boy than you, and I wish you would be as nice as him. So then Johnny Storm, not happy about this, he goes and finds Peter Parker, wall dressed up as Human Torch, and threatens to beat him up for making time with this girl. Unfortunately, Peter is with Betty, who now is like, oh, now I see you're cheating on me. Flash is there. Flash overhears all this, and it's like, um, Peter, like, just yelling at a superhero and telling him... Uh, Telling him, you may be a big, brave superhero to everyone else, but to me, you're just a knuckleheaded pain in the neck. Get the message, but Flash is still not impressed. <laughs> Betty can't be convinced that Peter is not cheating on her. Meanwhile, the Beetle, I guess his, this is very confusing. The Beetle has, was outside Raven's house, preying on her, and then she was out shopping, and now she's back in her house, and the Beetle is still outside her house, preying on her. I don't know if he was just calmly waiting outside for her to go do her shopping and to have her tea with Peter Parker. As you can see, uh, this is what I'm saying. It, There's a lot of it, plot going on here. It says that he was he's waiting for the torch to show up. So he doesn't care if she's, you know, he's not trying to follow her. He's just trying to be there because the torch is eventually going to show up at her house. So he's been hanging out all day, uh, just waiting. Spider-Man shows up instead because Spider-Man's like, wait a minute. Betty is so mad at me. Why shouldn't I have a little fun with the torch? He's jealous of Peter Parker. How would he feel if Spider-Man made a play for his gal? The poor guy will explode. So well, then and, and, Spider-Man and so goes this, to hit on Dory. This is a rehash of the backup story in that Strange Tales annual number two. Remember, there was the second story where Spider-Man. No, no, no. Like, that wasn't Strange Tales annual number two. That was Spider-Man number eight. Uh, the uh, the okay. Tribute to Teenagers issue. Teenagers book. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But this is a complete rehash of that uh, of that little short story. Yes, where Peter Parker decided to go hit on Tori Evans. That happened, that's right, in that book. And now here it is happening again. But instead, the Beetle attacks him. Beetle and Spider-Man fight for several pages. Now, it seems like, I'm like, why, if we're assuming that Dicko was doing uh, more of the heavy lifting than Stan Lee was, and it was Dicko's idea to bring the Beetle over from Strange Tales, why on earth would he do that? The Beetle was such a lame character. I'm like... Well, the one thing I would say that Steve Ditko would like about the Beetle is he's got really silly splayed fingers. And if there's yes. one thing that Steve Ditko likes, it's really silly splayed fingers. I, I'm I'm totally with you. I think that, that he's like, wow, that would be fun for me to draw. <laughs> Just go well, ahead. And- you know, I, I think that Stanley saying to Ditko, hey, let's use that Beetle character that we used in Strange Tales. That was his input into the into the story. And <laughs> maybe and maybe some of the, the subplot stuff. Um, like that, that feels like that's, that, that felt like a Stan Lee thing. Cause I, Ditko did not feel like, seem like he was having fun with this until we get to a couple of the action sequences at the very end. Like every part of this story seemed very kind of tight and constipated to me. Like not like this was not like the Doc Ock, you know, story or something like that. No. Um, you know, it's, it just doesn't feel like a, like a, like an artist's book to me. Yes, it does not. So then Dory calls up Johnny and says, oh, my God, you've got to come quick. The Beatles beating up Spider-Man. Johnny doesn't believe her and just hangs up on her. <laughs> and then super so, healthy relationship. <laughs> the Beatles Spider-Man battle goes inside Dory's house. Uh, then 
goes outside the house and, well, I guess Beetle flies off with Dory and Spider-Man's chasing after her. Johnny finally goes over to Dory's house and sees it's in a shambles and it's like, uh, oh, crap, <laughs> I think she was telling the truth. Human Torch then ends up fighting with Spider-Man. J. Jonah Jameson is looking for Peter and Betty tries calling Peter and finds out Aunt May says, I thought he was with you. And that only confirms to her that Peter is cheating on her. Spider-Man, Human Torch, Dory, and Beetle all end up in a big abandoned building. They have a big fight. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Rob, but he seems to be having more fun here. Yes. Dicko loves people interacting with buildings in various ways. And this abandoned building is seemingly making Dicko sort of come alive a little bit. Spider-Man eventually ends up webbing up the Beetle and leaving Dory and Johnny. And Spider-Man just feels awful. He just, he has a whole panel where he thinks about all the various people in his life, all of whom hate his guts. Oh, of course, he's envying Johnny and Dory, which is like, dude, <laughs> don't envy Johnny and Dory. They are a nightmare. But <laughs> Spider-Man eventually says, if only I could reveal my secret identity, if I could let people realize who I am, but I just don't dare. And then he looks the mopiest he's ever moped on the final panel, standing on top of a smokestack. And that is the end of the issue. So, a pretty lame issue, but what can you say to change my mind about this issue, Rob? What, what, what can you say about, about this issue? Totally lame issue? And the terrible thing is, is like, what is it, like 37, 38 issues in the Ditko run, and many of them are stone-cold classics. And in fact, there's like one coming up, an issue or two later, with the Green Goblin, where the plot really thickens, they get rid of a lot of the bad ideas, and they move forward with the good ideas, but this was not it. And I think this is a theme that we're going to come across with several of these books. This one just feels like they're treading water. This is not their best idea. Ditko himself might have been spread a little thin because he did that great Hulk story, which I didn't realize that was on our reading lists yeah. as well. You know, in addition to Doctor Strange. And I think that's the, there's one too many books on his list this month. And we're not getting the best of him. And Stan was really phoning it in. Some of these plot lines carry over to some of these other stories. Get like good that they're bringing all the plot lines together, but bad that they're these plot lines that you know <laughs> the universe building with bad atoms. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that's one of the things we like to talk about here is just about how there really were a lot of misfires in early Marvel comics. It's, I, I've been saying on this podcast that it's my thesis that for the most part. The second issue of most Silver Age Marvel Comics characters was pretty bad, right? It's like they have a great idea out of the gate and they're like, okay, we need another issue. And they just got to scramble for that one before they really find their footing. Uh, so a few things that I uh, observed about this issue. Dory, when she's trying to make Johnny jealous about Peter Parker, says his name is Peter Parker, Johnny. He's a student at Midtown High and he's just the nicest boy. He's interested in politics, science, and current events. I'm like, politics? I haven't really, I mean, obviously Ditko was getting deeper and deeper into politics in these days. And maybe that's what Stanley was was working from there. The other thing is, it is confirmed here that Spider-Man does indeed have asbestos in his web fluid. Uh, at one point he says, heads up, Torchy, you're not only... You're not the only Bush League pitcher around here. Here's an asbestos web ball to chew on for a while. So he's swinging around town. They have very much established that all of his webs basically evaporate into the air within an hour. And we have now confirmed that they have asbestos in them. So I once again will admit that J. Jonah Jameson was right all along. He is either a threat or a menace. One or the other. 
Is this and, a bigger problem than all the people wearing lead line suits, you know, to keep <laughs> Superman's X-ray vision off them? I mean, uh, I don't know, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of ambient environmental hazards in the Silver Age. This is true. Uh, the the last observation I had was that when Spider-Man and Torch catch up with the Beetle. Uh, and he has set Dory down because, you know, he only wanted her to, to get to Torch. Uh, Torch shows up and he sees, oh, Dory's okay. And he just says, okay, good to see you're safe. I'm going to go fight the beetle now. And just leaves her on the roof of this half-wrecked building that's crumbling down around her. <laughs> like, it's quickly yeah. getting more and more wrecked as the story goes, yes. Exactly. It's like, I don't think that was a good... Uh, okay, never mind. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think it's a shame that you ended up with such a dud of a Spider-Man issue. And I think you've got a good point that Dicko at this point has been spread thin for a while because Dicko is, you know, bumped up to three bucks. He was doing just Spider-Man and Doctor Strange for a long time. And now for the last, oh, five months, he's been doing the Hulk as well, which he has not been inking. He's continued to ink himself on uh, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, but you can tell he's less committed to the Hulk because he's not inking it. I don't know how much longer he's on the Hulk, just for a couple more months, I think. Oh, and maybe he'll, yeah, he'll, he'll be able to focus not, on his books. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to leave the Hulk and he's going to get on big time on Doctor Strange soon. Like all of these issues, with one exception, there is one Stone Cold classic in the stack that you gave me that I'm sure we'll get to. But the rest of them is like very inverted expectations. Like if you had told me, and you did tell me, like this is the list. And I looked at the list. I said, okay, the Spider-Man's going to be good. The Fantastic Four is going to be good. The Iron Man's going to be crappy. The Strange Tales is going to be crappy. You know, like that's my expectation of this era. And, you know, no spoilers, but like that was not the way it shook out to me. Like this stuff that, that I really liked here was not the stuff I was expecting to like. And the stuff that I thought, Oh, like obviously it's a prime Ditko Spider Man. It's going to be great, and it's like, oh no, this is, is this issue. Like, ooh, you know? <laughs> so, uh oh, yeah. Well, well, well let's, we, now I'm. I can't wait to find out what your actual feelings were on these books. So let's keep going. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, well, that's why we brought you in, Rob. We said, you know, this is going to be a really lame month. Who's a good guest to bring on? <laughs> <laughs> hey, give me all your crappy ones I can tee off. Of. I know who to inflict this one on. Okay, <laughs> so, let's move on to Daredevil. The Man Without Fear is going to battle the Fellowship of Fear. Now, I actually don't know. Do we ever see the Fellowship of Fear again after this? I'm not sure. Uh, Mr. Fear comes back a lot, but I'm not yes. sure he ever has a fellowship or this fellowship with him. All of these villains end up coming back, but this just seems like a weird constellation of them that we're going to get here. So this, this is one is very strange. We have Mr. Fear, Ox, and Eel. So yes. Ox, usually part of his own group, who is not with that group here. Ox has been separated out from the Enforcers. The Eel, who's always been a solo Human Torch villain, and then this new villain, Mr. Fear. It is a bizarre conglomeration of villains. And then the eel is going to go on to be a henchman of of Count Nefaria at one point in the future too. It's just yes. he's, he's got he's got a weird career. Okay, but right now we're talking about Daredevil. Oh, and um, I'm going to time myself like I should because I'm the one who usually has little discipline on actually keeping this short. Written with the fabulously flawless fantasy of Stan Lee, illustrated with the magnificently modern manner of Wally Wood lettered in the screamingly sophisticated style of Sam Rosen. As I've said before, while I absolutely think that Wally Wood is just one of the greatest comics artists and creators generally in the entire history of the industry, I am generally not a fan of his Silver Age Marvel output. And not that there's much of it, but I just don't think he's a good fit for this at all. 
And actually, Wally Wood didn't think he was a good fit for it either because he doesn't stick around long. So we start out, Daredevil is seeing a movie set filming a bank robbery. It turns out that the Fellowship of Fear, whom we have not yet met, set this whole thing up and hired a director to say, hey, we just need you to be here and film this thriller that we're wanting to make a movie of. You just need to run the cameras. They use that as cover to actually break into this well, Daredevil comes in, tries to foil him, they have a battle, and then we see Mr. Fear for the first time, who shoots his fear gun at Daredevil, and he freaks out in panic and runs. And everybody sees this, especially because there was a whole camera crew here, and everyone's talking about how Daredevil's a coward, and he's worried that, oh, have I turned into a coward? What's going on? And then this is the second time that we've had a fake film involving the ox. And the second time that people said, like, I assumed that was just an actor wearing an ox mask. And uh, it's yeah. like, no, it turned out it was the actual ox. We had that before in Spider-Man number 13, I think. They were like, oh, that's they did a really impressive job making that actor look like the ox. Second time that's happened. This felt like a missed opportunity to me, too, because this plot is like made for Mysterio, who's a cooler looking villain. and it would be perfect because he couldn't fool Daredevil because Daredevil's blind, right? He's not going to respond to illusions, you know, because he's like the special effects guy from the from the movies. And so, right. eventually, Mysterio will become a major Daredevil villain in the Kevin Smith run, I believe. Yeah, we had to wait. We had to wait a little while for that one. But, have to but, wait uh, a long time, but does he? I mean, does, he was available. He was sitting there on the bench, and instead, they're like, "No, let's use the eel for this, and then the ox." Like, okay. Meanwhile, we now find out about where Mister Fear came from. Turns out that he was running a wax museum where he had wax likenesses of all the various super characters in the Marvel universe. I seem to remember this having been done once, I think. Maybe I'm thinking of actually of a later Daredevil story that I think apes this one. This guy was upset that no one was coming to see his wax museum and he was going to go out of business. So he went into chemistry and was trying to figure out how to turn his wax figures to life in order to menace the city or whatever. But he accidentally creates a fear fluid that can then be vaporized and turned into uh, fear gas. So he's like, he becomes becomes terrified of his own cat and realizes he must have invented (laughs) fear gas. But uh, I love, I love how Wally Wood suddenly stops doing panel borders here. And I think it looks really nice. I think it's a real nice change of pace from Marvel comics to see some panel borderless uh, panels. Yeah. The the thing about Wood, because Steve, you touched on this. It's like, not only is Wally Wood, one of the greatest comic artists to ever put, you know, pen to paper, but very unusually at this moment, even in 1963, he was a comic artist with his own fan base because he'd come from EC. Right. So there were all of these people who knew who Wally Wood was. And the fact that Wally Wood is drawing for Marvel was actually a big deal in the moment. Like when that oh, yeah. happened, right? So it was a huge coup. It was like second string, lower division team suddenly like signing the Cy Young Award winner to pitch in their game. And what do they put him on? Like Daredevil, which is the runt of the litter of the Marvel Silver Age for a very, very long time. And also then they stick him with this story where every single panel is crowded with text. I mean, like Stanley, not super self-restrained in the amount of words he puts on the page, but here he seemed to be going overboard. And, you know, while he would drew for EC, so he knows how to draw around a lot of words, but... I felt like there was never any room for him to do anything interesting or special with the art here. And it's just like a huge waste. You get this guy 
that it's like, hey, fans, it's Wally Wood drawing this terrible book. So maybe you should read it for the art. And then you don't let the art do anything good for the story except to illustrate this kind of it's, he could even he could even make the weak plot interesting if you let him have enough space on the page to do it. And all of this is like these tiny panels crowded with words and like no room for Wally Wood to do any of his magic. And again, the next couple of issues, that would get better. This is the last hurrah for Old Yellow, I think. And next next issue is the is the red suit and we're getting more Wally Wood. But so, so let me let me push back on one thing you were saying there to have a spoiler alert for everybody out there in podcast land. Wally Wood's going to end up leaving in just a few months and is going to make no secret of the fact that he considered the so-called Marvel method to be essentially a scam on the artists where uh, Stanley was just getting the artists to do all the writing and not pay them or credit them for it. And there have been many people who have argued that over the years, and that's neither here nor there at the moment from what I'm saying. But my point about that is, I believe that based on Wally Wood's own uh, descriptions of what he got at Marvel, I think that the pacing of this whole issue and the way the panels are laid out was all him. That Stan Lee did seem to layer on way too much dialogue after the fact. But in terms of how the panels are spaced out and everything, I would be hard-pressed to believe that wasn't 100% Wood. Maybe so, but I don't think that he was intending for his panels to be covered up by that much X. True. Yeah. I will grant you that. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, probably, um, probably broke the flow and broke the... the like, he's a very design-oriented artist, right? And he's all about like spotting the blacks and moving your eye around the page. He's like such a master at that. And none of that, like none of those strengths come through on this particular job. And if I was like a, like an old EC guy and I was like 18 years old and I was, I was somebody's big brother and I was old enough to remember when comics were good and Wally Wood was drawing horror stories. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll read this thing that my eight year old brother brought home because it's Wally Wood. And it's like, oh, wow, that's not that good. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, it's not. Okay, so I'm going to restart my timer here. I stopped it for a while right. there. No, no, you're, we're, we're supposed to all kibitz here, but you know, what are you going to do? Mr. Fear then uh, is looking at his wax museum of all these uh, of all these Marvel Comics villains and is trying to figure out who would be the best people to get for his gang. And he wants people who would be helpful and powerful, but not smart or powerful enough to take over the gang. So he picks out the ox and the eel, the Ox apparently got parole from jail before the rest of the enforcers, so he just goes and snaps him up uh, while he's a free agent. And, oh, and I do have to say, I love Wally Wood's design for Mr. Fear's mask. Yes. I have found that, you know, Wally Wood's design of supervillains' costumes can vary in terms of how well they turn out, but this is really, really nice. Yeah, even, so, I mean, even the Matador last issue was a Trinsley villain, but he looked kind of cool. And I really like the way Mr. Fear looks here. He's got a really nice, creepy mask. I like him a lot. So this guy's putting out a press release or whatever about his new Daredevil wax sculpture at the Wax Museum. And everyone in the Murdoch and uh, uh, Nelson and Murdoch offices is like, uh, you know, oh, this is going to be great. I want to go see it. And so Matt comes along. I guess just because they don't want to leave him out of this activity. <laughs> it's like, ooh, Matt, I got to tell you, he looks really a lot like Daredevil. As a matter of fact, now that I'm looking at you, no, 
Both Matt and Foggy realize that the ox is there. They both recognize that he is around. And so both of them end up coming back after hours. Matt, obviously, as Daredevil. Foggy as Foggy. So they both show up. Daredevil is getting beat up by the bad guys. Then, meanwhile, Foggy shows up to do what he's going to do and ends up essentially getting taken control of and getting beaten up. Daredevil then runs him to a hospital. So he has got to drop him off at the hospital, go home, change into his civilian identity, and come back. Uh, Yeah, so when they called Karen in to uh, be by uh, Foggy's side, she comes into the hospital wearing a very smart sort of skirt suit that she's got with her clutch and looking very put together. And she says, how did it happen? How serious is it? Will he, will he be all right? And the doctor says, easy, Miss Page. Try to compose yourself. We're doing all we can. I'm just looking at this like, she could not be more composed. In that <laughs> now. Like, if she you said put on a suit, if you said draw draw Karen Page very composed, that's what it would look like. Anyway, so the Fellowship of Fear then all dress up as orderlies to come in and try to take Foggy out of his hospital room, but then they end up finding Karen there, and so Daredevil feels he has to come in to break everything up. At one point, there's a very funny sequence where uh, Daredevil grabs the eel. Of course, they're all out of costume. They're dressed up as orderlies. Daredevil grabs the eel by his ankles and uses him as a bat to hit the other two members of the Fellowship of Fear. Of course, he ends up turning off the lights to even up the odds, takes care of the bad guys while the lights are off. But they all get away. (laughs) Yeah, they all get away. Mr. Fear is like, oh, you know what? The police will never suspect us to go back to the Wax Museum, so it'll be safe for us to go there. I'm like, I don't know how that logic works out, but sure, why not? So they show up, and it turns out that the Daredevil wax sculpture that's there in that particular moment is actually Daredevil, and he comes out and he. Well, so we already had we already had Ox and the Eel try this before on page ten, where Daredevil is walking into the wax museum, and it's like uh, that's clearly the Ox and the Eel standing there, but they're pretending to be wax statues, and they think I'm going to fall for that. But then Daredevil's like, "Hey, that was a good idea they tried before. Now I'll pretend to be a wax statue, and this time it works." And Mr. Fear does not suspect that the wax statue of Daredevil is actually Daredevil. Then meanwhile, uh, Daredevil apparently knows more about the layout of Mr. Fear's wax museum than Mr. Fear does because he knows how to go by the exhaust vent that is going to protect him from the fear gas. What, Daredevil throws some sand on the eels that he's easier to grip. Uh, The ox at one point gets Daredevil in a bear hug and Daredevil plays possum to then be able to break himself out. He then runs around into a blind alley, and Ox comes and absolutely clobbers him. But apparently, this is the mannequin that (laughs) Daredevil had replaced inside. Then he's able to get the drop on the Ox and take him out. He wraps them all up, basically calls the cops, and then heads back to the hospital room where Foggy is getting better. That's about it. As you said, you know, Wally Wood is... uh, Just not a good fit. I don't know how much of it is his talents are being wasted by Stan, how much of it is he is realizing this is just not something that he is into, and so he's not giving it his all. If it's just he was put on Daredevil, which at this point was a super lame character with a super lame batch of villains. Um, And and, and a low-selling book, too. I mean, it's like, I think Stan was like, okay, this book needs help. We'll put him on this book and see if they can save it. 
But this calls to mind like one of the more baffling decisions. So Marvel, for contractual reasons, had like eight books a month that they could put out or something like that with their distribution agreement. And you had like Captain America and Iron Man sharing a book. You had, you know, uh, Hulk and eventually Submariner, but at that time, Giant Man sharing a book. You had Doctor Strange and this weird human torch thing sharing a book. Any of those, I think, could have carried their own book better than Daredevil. Yes. Why is Daredevil a 30-page story or however how long this thing is? This was crying out to be a 16-page a story. Like there's yes. no need for this thing to have spread out over it an entire book. Like there was too much crazy, useless stuff going on here. And then maybe if they had compressed it, it, it could have made some sense. For some reason, Marvel feels like they're limited to eight superhero books a month at this point. So like yes. they have seven regular books plus two bi-monthly books that alternate. Daredevil, Daredevil alternates with, with X-Men. But anyway, so Rob, do you have anything else to add about uh, Daredevil before we move on? No, Jesus, we've spent already too much time on this. <laughs> yes, we have. That's a terrible comic. You know, I think this is, I like this better than last issue. I think that Dr. Fear is a better, not Dr. Fear, sorry, Mr. Fear is a better, he did not go to an evil doctor university. He makes a better villain than the Matador, but just uh, slightly, and he will have more legs than the Matador. He will come back many times over the years in various forms. Although for some reason, he's one of these villains that always has a different secret identity. The costume keeps getting passed on from person to person, but definitely bringing the ox and the eel in it. Nobody ever needs to see the eel outside of Human Torch. Nobody sees the, needs to see the eel inside Human Torch, but we certainly don't need to see the eel outside Human Torch. And I, it just I, gets more and more bizarre when he shows up in the X-Men. I, I gotta say, I really don't want to see the eel inside Human Torch. That is just not my thing. But hey, man, whatever you're into. All right, let's go ahead and go on to Fantastic Four. So I don't know, Rob, you were implying that you were not a big fan of this Fantastic Four issue. Is that true? In the arc of even the first 40 issues of Fantastic Four, this one was okay. I, I, it, had its, it had its good moments and stuff like that. I think this is another one where there was like a lot of filler. And it's really... Readers of the Fantastic Four, better things are coming. Like we're about to hit Frightful Four and Inhumans. And like Fantastic Four is about to get really, really good. This issue is not Even if you had done the next month, I think that we're going to meet Medusa the next month. So we're going to have the beginning of the introduction of the Inhumans. That would have given us more to talk about. You know, you realize next issue of Daredevil is not only the beginning of the red costume, but the great uh, Namor story. So you're missing a good issue by one on that book. Yeah, so Fantastic Four... We have the first of something that's going to become very common in the Marvel Universe, a college campus issue. This will become a mainstay of the Marvel Universe. Like, oh, you know, what happens when Captain America visits America's college campuses? But here we have Calamity on the campus. If we got a treat for you, enough said. We have a visit to college. We also have the introduction, as we can see on the cover, of Dragon Man, who I am always been a big fan of. So I have some affection for this issue because it introduces Dragon Man. Dragon Man is cool. I, I'll, I'll give you that. Lee and Kirby do a nice job pacing these issues and beginning at the latest possible moment. We don't begin with them sitting around and getting an invite to college. We begin as they all land on a college university. Turns out they're there because Mr. Fantastic is there to give some sort of speech to the students. So Reed hands over all the bags to some students. Sue is mobbed by boys who like her. Reed is mobbed by girls who like him. And everybody is ignoring Johnny because he is a (laughs) high school kid. And he's like, what's with these kooky co-eds? I guess a high school kid is like nowhere with them. It's a funny runner in the issue that Johnny is constantly miffed. He is uh, not being mobbed here at the college. We then see they meet the dean and Professor X and Scott Summers are there interviewing students to see if they might want to switch schools to the Professor Xavier's school. 
uh, for gifted youngsters. But Scott thinks too bad our trip here was in vain. Those we tested were not true mutants. Meanwhile, they run across a professor, Gilbert, who is making a giant dragon man that is just is never going to come to life. It's like, no, 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 just make a dragon man. No reason. But then we cut back to Transylvania where Diablo escapes from where he was seemingly sealed up forever. For some reason, he's got a completely different color scheme on his costumes from when he was sealed up. And he decides to go get revenge on the Fantastic Four. We cut back to the university. So we already ran into Professor Xavier and Scott Summers. Now we run into Peter Parker. And we get our first ever hint that Peter Parker may be graduating soon. He is coming to check out the university because he's going to be graduating high school soon and he's doing his school visits. He's visiting and, and, and Johnny is still pissed off at him for that situation in the Spider-Man issue, right? Right. Yes. yes. And so we must be reading these books in the right order. We generally read them in alphabetical order. So there is no reason to think we would have been reading them in the right order. But here we have a reference back to the Spider-Man, which we've already read. And then it's going to get referenced back to again in Human Torch. We've got three different books this month that all mention that interaction from Spider-Man 21. Uh, of course, Johnny Storm and Peter Parker don't like each other. Um, so they uh, they have a frosty interaction. We then cut to the football field where everybody is having a fun time playing. We get a sense that Sue is just the most badass member of the team. Once again, she is just completely walloping Ben Grimm when she is trying to extricate him from playing in this football game. Sue then sees that Diablo is driving across campus, and he's like, I think I recognize that guy from somewhere, and tries chasing after him, but doesn't catch up. Diablo gets Professor Gilbert, and it's like, uh, you made a dragon man? That's awesome. Great. I've got <laughs> alchemical stuff that'll bring your dragon man to life, and I can attack the Fantastic Four with it while Reed is giving his speech. The Dragon Man fights the Fantastic Four one by one. Reed's speech is eventually disrupted as first Thing fights Dragon Man, then Human Torch does. Then Mr. Fantastic tries to wrap himself around him. Sue tries to put a force field around his wings. They are in a massive fight. Eventually, they figure out that Diablo is behind it. They catch up to Diablo. Diablo turns a lake into ice and is skating out on the ice. Dragon Man... I guess is freed from his slavery to Diablo and attacks Diablo. So they're like, Dragon Man saved us. And Dragon Man then tries to pounce on Diablo, breaks the ice. They both go down into the frozen lake and then they are never seen again, or at least not seen again in this issue. They don't come back up. And then Professor Gilbert says, I'm going to stand by this lake and keep the vigil for it is I who created him. And should he ever appear again, I will destroy him. And so he's going to stand and watch the lake for the next several years to make sure that Diablo and Dragon Man don't come out. Then everybody decides to leave the university, but Ben and Johnny are like, where's Reed and Sue? And they're like, oh, I think they're the Lover's Lane. So we go to Lover's Lane where they've somehow twisted a gnarled tree into the shape of a heart, which I guess is romantic, but it looks kind of uh, freaky. And we get a huge stepping stone here. We read, it says to Sue, according to tradition, any couple who hold hands and kiss while standing before the tree will marry within a year. She says, I've been waiting for you to take my hand. It says, Sue, my dearest, you mean you feel about me the way I feel about you? I've always felt that way, Reed. Perhaps I never fully realized it till now, but it's always been you. So are they engaged or not? Does that mean they're engaged? Uh, it, 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 it might be one of those things where like they're engaged to be engaged. <laughs> that's, that's, that's as close as Reed gets to like romance. So I, I'm, I, I took that as a proposal. I don't know. And, and you're right. That does move the plot forward. And I have to say, in terms of my own view of this, it was like, this one is not the best Fantastic Four story, but there's a floor on these stories that because Kirby and Lee were so good at this title, 
that even the lesser ones have a lot going for them. And this one, you know, had it had its moments. Um, that stuff with Dragon Man with Sue is really uh, interesting. I guess what what pushed my buttons on this one was two things that they're kind of extrinsic to the story. One is that there is this constant way that Kirby portrays Sue as a very heroic character and the dialogue and narration that Stan adds on top of it completely undermines and diminishes her heroic role in the story. Yes. And like, this is a constant thing throughout this run of Fantastic Four until we get to like the 50s, 60s, 70s um, ones where she starts to become a little bit more of a full character. And it's just super annoying. And, and so every time I see that, I'm like, you know, like Jack was trying to tell you, like, make her a good character. Like that would be good. And, yeah. and Stan is like, no, girls are stupid. Like boys don't want to read about strong girls. And it's like, no, you idiot. But anyway, the, the, the verdict of history is spoken on that one. And the other one, and this Steve probably speaks to you as an inker, <laughs> man, Chick Stone, like of all the guys that ink Kirby in this period, that thick line around everything. Uh-huh just makes everything like Kirby is the most fluid, gorgeous, dynamic storyteller. And then you put this guy that like sets it all in cement and it, it's just every panel looks like a, like, like a stained glass window or something. And, you know, it, it, I, I found it very hard to read, um, especially knowing that, you know, that Ayers and Sinnott, who is coming in a couple of issues and even God help us Coletta do a better job getting the energy of Kirby across than, than Chick Stone does. And all of these issues, no matter what the, the subject matter suffer under that to me. That that's funny. I, I, I kind of like Chick Stone's inking for the most part. Um, I know that Matt has talked about how uh, his lack of spotting blacks uh, a lot can, um, can really bother him. Um, but that's, I, that's another thing for sure. Yeah. Yes. But yes. Yes. But you seem to be having the opposite problem. You you think he's putting sometimes I think Chick Stone doesn't put enough no, no, on the page. Black. But you're it's saying he puts too much ink down on the page. It doesn't it doesn't have to do with the amount of ink, I think. It's like how you're using the ink. That uh, essentially, yes, uh Chick Stone does tend to do pretty uh pretty thick um uh uh you know containment lines basically uh around every character. And I mean, that's a technique, and I find it to be a valid technique. It doesn't bother me the way it seems to bother you, but um, but that's 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 why we have you on here. <laughs> Stanley hasn't given up the whole thing of trying to come up with silly catchphrases for people. At one point, Johnny says, Blazing Bearcats, which I think is <laughs> one he said before, but it's just like, what? Um and then uh, when Dragon Man is broken from, uh, from Diablo's control by Sue's beauty and kindness, like, you know, uh, King Kong, uh, she says, everything that lives is responsive to kindness and sympathy. Remember the wolves who cared for Romulus and Remus? Remember King Kong's gentleness towards a helpless girl? And it's like, those are both fiction. <laughs> but um i love finding slang that i've never heard of before the thing at one point says we'll find him you can't hide a gink like dragon man in your vest pocket g-i-n-k and i did look that up apparently something called a gink hotel was essentially a um a home for homeless men 
that was being set up by homeless people. It was essentially, you know, uh, a mutual aid among uh, the unhoused uh, during, you know, uh, earlier times. So I, that's the only thing I could find out for where gink would have come from. Um, but yeah, that just really jumped out at me. Uh, the last two things I've got here. Uh, yeah, uh, thing at one point is saying they might have been swept to safety in one of them subterranum, subterranum underground caves. <laughs> I don't know. I found that good. It sounds like I'm the only one. As the Fantastic Four is leaving, somebody says, we haven't had so much excitement here since we invited Jane Mansfield to lecture on philosophy. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. Once again, I thought they were I, I'm I'm getting too far ahead of myself. I thought they were going to say we haven't had so much excitement since we invited Jane Fonda to speak. But no, that would be that'd be a couple years later. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, let me just back up what you were saying before, Rob, that, you know, it really annoys me when she's like, oh, Sue is the only one who notices that Diablo is coming on campus. That's good. And then she follows him while invisible. But then Stan writes that as why does my women's intuition make me shudder at the sight of him? Like, did you have to like? If you've got right. a woman who's noticing something that nobody else notices, that's good. And then don't ruin it by saying that, oh, it's because of, you know, her woman's intuition. Yeah. And it's like a constant thing throughout this. Um, I, I mean, Sue is like the p- pinnacle of women's lib compared to uh, Jan in, in <laughs> you know, Giant Man. Never, you know, like, but writing strong women characters, not Stan's forte. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. yeah, and J- Jan can come and go with that. Jan has her has her moments, but yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of problems in there. Um, we we will not have any of those moments this month, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> no, she does not coat herself in glory this month. But yeah, no. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear your you've got a very different take on Chickstone things than we have. I think we are both big Chickstone fans here. My I've never had a problem with the thick lines that he does. I'm noticing it now that you're saying it that he puts thick lines around the exteriors of the characters, and I can see what you're saying. It sort of feels like stained glass, but I'm a big fan of it, and uh, I um, certainly like it a lot more than Coletta. And I know Steve's like Stone a lot more than Ayers. I liked Ayers a lot, but I think I've come to like Stone more than Ayers as well. Certainly like him also more than George Bell, who inked the book for a while between Ayers and Stone. And once again, you've got Wally Wood working for you. Have Wally Wood ink Kirby. Maybe there's an idea. I yeah. mean, like... Yeah, that's what they did. Skymasters with Skymasters. Yeah, it's like Wood one of the greatest Kirby. combinations in the history of comics. Like, you've got them both working and, and you're not using wood for anything worthwhile. Like, no, Don't worry, Kirby. they're going to have Wood ink Don Heck. So that'll all work yeah. out, you know, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So, uh, so let's go ahead and move on to Journey into Mystery with Thor. Uh, this has some somewhat interesting developments, but uh, one of the less interesting developments is we have the return of the Grey Gargoyle. Uh, one thing we do have is at the very beginning of the book, it's like Tales of Asgard has spilled over into the main the main title here, which is not unwelcome. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's quite nice. Um, a Tale Told with Gusto by Stan Lee, a drama drawn with grandeur by Jack Kirby, and I-D-Y-L-L. Is that Idil? Idol? Anyway, Idol. An Idol inked with with gallantry by Chick Stone, and a legend lettered with glee by R.D. Simek. So we have here that big sort of floating Viking ship that, Matt, I think you've said in the future will be how 
the how Thor gets around when traveling through space. Um, yes. And so this is our first glimpse of that. Um, and it looks quite nice. I think, I think we've had a brief glimpse of it before in Tales of Asgard, but this is one of the all-time great Thor splash pages. This splash page of Thor and Odin and the Asgardians all riding this flying Viking ship over mountains is just gorgeous. I just absolutely love it. And and I think... And by, and by the way, Dick Stone brought his A-game on this one. This is a nice-looking art story start to finish. Okay, so, uh, so he, here's one thing I was going to say, is that the inking on this ship uh, on the ship itself looks really light there are no blacks spotted on that thing pretty much almost at all very little variation in line weight anywhere there i mean for as fantastic as this image looks that side of the ship that is closest to us it's really unclear what the contours of that are like where the angles are with that so uh, Chickstone had some challenges in terms of exactly how to handle some of those details, but he could have added some more blacks in there, in, in my mind. I think you're being pretty nitpicky. I sometimes complain about the sound, but I think this is one of the most gorgeous pages I've ever seen, and I have no complaints. Fair. Yeah, many of the other stories this month were waiting for these titles to get good. This is the moment where Thor gets good, because Thor had been really crummy. As soon as Kirby left, all those intermediary stories and like journey into mysteries, like in the nineties and early hundreds were yes. awful. Oh my God, they were terrible. Why would they even bother with Thor if this is what they're going to do with them? Then all of a sudden, this is the issue where it's like, now we see the glorious future ahead for Thor as the Asgardian deity that he's supposed to be. And, and from here, it's all blue sky for the next, you know, 50 well, issues. In terms of penciling and, Scripting, not in terms of inking, because we're about to have Stone leave the book and Coletta. Coletta is already on the back of the book and Coletta is about to take over the front half of the book. Yeah, I think I think Coletta's only decent work in his entire career was doing those through. Some of those look okay. Uh, uh, I, I can't say I'm, that. I know I'm in the minority on that one. But. You're not the only person I've heard say that. Some people have said like, oh, no, I can't stand Coletta, except just sort of Thor is Kirby and Coletta to me. So that's a thing. I've heard people say that. That's not my I mean, As soon as Bill Everett shows up, then you're like, why wasn't Bill Everett aching? I know. Oh, that's the greatest relief in the history of comics is when Bill Everett takes over inking those six issues of Kirby Thor and does it so much better than Coletta was doing. True. But in any case, the Thor gets good with this issue. No doubt about it. Like this is the start of, of good Thor. We have some fantastic battle scenes uh, in the first couple of pages. They're having a battle against, I think, Jotunheim or something like that. Anyway, one way or the other, they're having a battle against somebody. Odin says, time for you to go ahead and start taking up your princely duties here in Asgard. You've shown how worthy you are. Come and, you know, essentially start uh, taking over, you know, start coming in to eventually take over and rule by my side. And he's like, yeah, dude, I can't do that. There's this girl and... Odin's like, okay, that's it. You're out of here. Kicks him out. He goes back to Earth, turns back into Don Blake, and decides, that's it. I've got to tell Jane that I am Thor. Uh, and she, he, uh, what Jane is really showing a lot more affection for him than she sometimes does. They've gone back and forth on how much she is into him. Uh, but this time, it's very, very much she is in love with him. 
Meanwhile, we find out the Great Gargoyle has just been uh, accidentally unearthed from the uh, riverbed in which he had been uh, lodged. We get a brief recap of his origin. Then we go back to Asgard, and Odin is throwing a fit, like just literally throwing things everywhere with how angry he is at Thor. And Loki comes in, ingratiates himself to Odin. Odin, meanwhile, says, okay, you know what? If he doesn't want to be the Prince of Asgard, then you know what? He can't have the power of Thor anymore. So, so be it. He just does this right as Don tries to prove to Jane that he is actually Thor by stamping his stick on the ground. And it doesn't work. So he's like, oh no, I'm in trouble with Odin. Meanwhile, the Grey Gargoyle comes in because last time he had tussled with Thor, Don Blake had been involved somehow. So he's like, oh, I'll go to Don Blake and ask him how to find Thor. So at this point, he's running from him. Uh, There's one silly moment when Don and Jane are going down in an elevator. Uh, The Grey Gargoyle rips open the elevator door and says, by merely touching the elevator cables, I make them hard enough to support my own ponderous weight. So he's turning the elevator cables to stone, saying that that's actually going to make them stronger. Which, you know, I'll have to say, since I was a physics minor in college, stone is very, very strong under compression, but really weak under tension. (laughs) You're now putting it under tension. You should have left them steel. Anyway, in Asgard, a bunch of warriors are all saying, look, we've got to go to Thor and help him out in some way. Balder is the one who has chosen to do so. But then Loki is like, look, I'm second in command now at this point. My word is law. I'm telling you, you can't go. They're like, okay. But then one guy had apparently already slipped off and wasn't told. So he heads to Earth. So meanwhile, we've still got Great Gargoyle running rampant in the city. Another sort of silly thing in, thing here is he says, Ha, you had forgotten that my stone wings give me the power of limited flight. And A, <laughs> that's not wings. I mean, that's that's a cape. That's clearly a cape. It's not wings. And all, you know, with this or with the beetle where you've got something like stone wings or steel wings, it's always like, dude, just material science. Like, come on, look into it. Whoever this anonymous Asgardian warrior is who is able to escape Asgard comes and hits Grey Gargoyle with an arrow to distract him. They, <laughs> they say he's Honier the Hunter, H-O-N-I-R, Honier okay. the Hunter. So I guess not anonymous, but unknown. Let's put it that way. So then we see Don and Jane drive off in a convertible sports car. And again, I'm like, is this Don's car? Is it, you know, is, where where does he keep it? Why have we never seen it before? The only time we've ever seen him with a car before, it was a Rolls Royce that was in one of the very early issues. And it's like, I, where, where? Hey, man, what? successful surgeons, they have a big yeah, car. Yeah, he's a doctor. He can afford a nice car. Uh, we also have a billboard that says, join the MMM, and supposedly it's going to be S at the end of it. So join the Mary Marvel Marching Society that uh, is seen in the background at one point. So then Honir is able to grab Don's wrist and say, okay, look, I can give you 30 seconds of Thor's power. Make it count. He turns into Thor, fights the Grey Gargoyle. There's a pretty neat fight scene. Eventually, Thor essentially melts the Grey Gargoyle's stone so that he's all fused together. Seems a little bit like, ugh, that's 
that's pretty serious. <laughs> and in the end, Odin realizes that I can't quit you, Thor. He relents in what he's been doing. But then Don ends up not telling Jane, yes, here, I can actually prove it to you now. So she thinks he was just going mad for a moment. I mean, I guess he sort of thinks like, though I am Don Blake once more, my power has been restored to me. I can feel it surging through my engine again. How can I again give up so precious gift, even in the name of love? So he realizes like, I don't want to was being Thor. So I'm just going to tell Jane, yep, I went crazy and said I was Thor. That wasn't true. <laughs> and she's like, I knew it. I knew you were crazy. I knew you weren't Thor. And they're like, okay, good. Everything is copacetic now. You know, we're talking about where Stan Lee can screw up stuff that Jack Kirby has put out there. It works the other way as well, that Jack Kirby often will have all sorts of weird plot holes in what he's done and Stan Lee has to excuse it. One thing that Kirby is just habitual about with that is having Don Blake turn to Thor clearly in front of everybody. And Stanley is having to go through verbal fits to try and explain what's going on. So on page 13, it says, Still hidden by the concealing wall, he who is Don Blake unhesitatingly strikes his cane upon the pavement. There's no, con we have not seen a concealing wall. We have not even been told about him falling behind a wall. It's. <laughs> I think it's Kirby that eventually wins that because the whole Don Blake Thor thing is actually kind of stupid. And I think oh, yeah. Kirby, Kirby is on to that before anybody is. And then eventually they do away with most of that stuff. I mean, there's still a little of it, but. It, it goes by the wayside that that's not the that's not what's interesting about Thor is that he has a human secret identity. Like and so Kirby is always like he's more interested in the things about the character that really are worth talking about. And Stan seems like he's wedded that he has to have this secret identity trope, otherwise it's not a superhero comic. And it's like Kirby's like, no, 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 forget about that. Like the guy is Thor and Thor is cool. And honestly, the 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 brattiest thing in here is that caption on like page two or three or something. Yeah, so Kirby is going nuts on all of this stuff. And Stan says, we told Jack he could do a couple of pages of just yeah. action to get it out of his system. It's like, do the whole book like that. <laughs> get it out of his system. Like, that's what we're here for. Do that. Right. I, I, think, I think in things like that, Stan Lee is like, wow, there's nothing I can plaster dialogue all over in these panels. What the heck? Okay, well, I guess I'll still put some superfluous stuff in here about how I can't do that <laughs> and yes. say what my annoyance is. Stanley says, we promised old Jack Kirby to let him get a few of these eye-opening battle scenes out of his system. So here they are. Go ahead. Enjoy them. There's no extra charge. And it's like occasionally the tensions will just erupt onto the page where Stan's like, look, this is what Jack wants the book to be. He wants it to be Big Asgardian Battles. It's not what I want the book to be. I want it to be Grey Gargoyle and Jane. And so I'm just going to go ahead and acknowledge this tension right here on the page in the, in the caption boxes. You know, there are people now who will claim that, oh, Stan never even saw these books until they were done. And it's like, that's just clearly not true. That clearly the tension is here because Stan is saying, we need to have Greg Gargoyle in this issue. And right. that is seemingly, all sides seem to be saying that is not coming from Jack, that Stan is saying what should happen in these issues. It is not the case that Stan is just seeing the books after they're done, as some people claim these days. Before we move on, I want to say that uh, the only other thing I was going to point out is that when Odin is throwing his fit on page seven, these may be the biggest helmet wings we've ever seen Odin have. Odin has had some big helmet wings. Of course, Thor has big helmet wings. But these are the size of cows. 
the <laughs> Odin's helmet wings on page seven. He has two cow-sized helmet wings on his helmet. And I got to say, he's always the king of the huge headgear, but this is setting a new standard even for him. Yes, I hadn't even noticed that. But yes, you're very, you're, they're like the length of his whole arm. So uh, in Tales of Asgard, this is a relatively simple story, as they often, but not always, are here. We're now in the boyhood of Loki. And uh, I think the most interesting thing about this story is that we see that Loki and Thor each are wearing tunics that have their first initials on them. So <laughs> Thor has a big T and Loki has a little L on the like pocket area. So they're watching some sort of uh, Asgardian sporting combat competition. You know, think uh, boxing match or you know <laughs> wrestling match or something like that it, in it the modern world. It appears to be world. sort of a quarterstaff battle, but the two quarterstaffs are utterly bizarre and they're built completely differently from each other. And it seems like a very unfair fight with one of these versus the other. And it's just, it's a bizarre sport. Yes. Loki being who he is, uh, interferes with the battle. He uh, uses some sort of magic to blow up one of their bow staffs or whatever you would call these things. Um, Everyone's like, oh, look, it's those two kids up there. So they go up there and uh, and get them down. And uh, they're only ragging on Loki. And Thor's like, "Uh, why aren't you getting on my case too? And they're like, oh, we know you would never pull something like that. And he's basically like, I was up there as well. You should, you know, I, I should take whatever punishment he takes. And of course, this just endears him to everybody else. And Loki is once again jealous that even though Thor is doing everything he can to try to be nice to Loki, all this does is make Loki more and more bitter and jealous. And that's pretty much the story. It's a really kind of lame story. There's not yeah. much here at all. Given that we often get, you know, fun little action epics in Tales of Asgard, this is just like we were watching a game and I blew up one of the sticks and then Thor said, you should punish me too. And that's the whole story. I like that they're devoting a lot of issues to the general gradual sort of psychological development of Loki. And I think this is interesting as a step in the psychology of Loki and him realizing what his relationship is going to be to Thor. But boy, they could have made a more interesting story out of it. What month are we talking about here uh, in terms of when these books came out? Is this like May or? The cover date is February 1965. Oh, all right. Because I'm trying to think like, were these done around the holidays and everybody like wanted to get out of the office and just <laughs> throwing in their, their, their lamest ideas? And it's like, fine, let's just get the books out. Because, you know, like in my personal opinion, there is one stone cold classic among the ones that you've given out here. Um, we haven't come to it yet. And this, this was not one of them. So. Yeah. No, I, I think that this probably would have hit the stands in about November if I'm not mistaken, by how they usually used to go. Uh, so I'm not sure if that necessarily holds up. They were but, doing yeah. it in August and it was like hot out and everybody wanted to leave. And, uh, <laughs> air conditioning kind of air thing, conditioning yeah, water. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the Tales of Asgards have been hit and miss. You know, you've got some really fantastic stuff that you get in them. And then you sometimes have these little stories where it's like, you really could have done more with this. I will also point out that on the very last page of Tales of Asgard, the first panel, um, I imagine that originally had backgrounds in it before yes. Vince Coletta inked it. And there is nary a background <laughs> in that panel. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's I it. think Vince Coletta probably erased the backgrounds. Yep, most likely. So yes, a perfectly fine issue of Thor and sort of lame Tales of Asgard. Still 
all worth it in Thor for those first three pages of great Asgardian battles. Yeah. Um, that uh, that made the whole issue worth it. Maybe the three best pages we're going to read this month. So, Rob, we usually we record eight issues at a time, but we break it up into two episodes. So, are you fine with being our guest for two episodes in a row? Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine because we're getting to the one that I really want to talk about. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Well, so let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. This is a special treat, guys. We're going to have our for the first time two part special guest. We're going to have Rob sticking around for the next episode. But first, let's go ahead and wrap up the first half of. February 1965. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Thanks for being here. And as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.